God does not need you to be a success in business. God does not need you to go and build anything. What God requires from us is obedience. Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, one of the co-hosts of the program. We have a very special guest with us today, Michael Arietta. Say hello, Michael. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. You bet. Michael is a, a private equity investor, a venture capitalist, a former tech entrepreneur, and his current gig is uh, as founder and CEO of Garden City Equity. We invest in all kinds of founder and, and family-owned businesses. We'll get into all that because that actually is, we could do a whole podcast just on what he's doing now, but I'm, and I'm sure we'll spend some time on that today. But Michael, just for context, we always like to start out, as you know, by just telling about kind of where you grew up, what your family was like, that sort of thing. Yeah, I'll keep it short. Grew up in Miami, Florida. Family was all from Puerto Rico, so I was the first one in my family uh, born here in the States. Uh, my father and mother were great parents. They tried their best to uh, provide for us financially. They had all difficulties uh, doing that. My father worked in furniture. My mom worked in retail. And I moved 15 times in 17 years, primarily because you know rent kept going up and then you kept finding another house that was more affordable and so forth and so forth. It was a difficult upbringing for sure. Just they were not, they were not walking with the Lord or they were not I didn't have any faith affiliation really growing up. And so they, there was a lot of chaos, Jeff, growing up. And so when I got into middle school, a teacher, she told me, hey, you have a really bad stutter problem. You uh, should apply for this disability grant. And if the state of Florida grants it to you, you're going to be able to go to any private school to help work on your disability for free. Because we obviously know your, your family can't pay it. So it's called the McKay Scholarship Grant. And Governor Jeb Bush, who, crazy enough, now is one of our advisors, he came up with that. So I was able to start stop going to the lower income public school districts that I was zoned for, and I started going to a private Christian school in Coral Springs Christian Academy. So that two out of three kids that come out of poverty, it's directly correlated to them having a positive exposure in their life. Two out of three, not drives, not intellect. It's just them knowing that there's a whole new world that's available for them out there. And I started selling Cutco knives when I was uh, 17 years old to help my family financially. My dad had a bunch of health problems, kidney, a kidney transplant, pancreas transplant, amputation. My mom got breast cancer. Wow. So I started selling Cutco knives, became the number one salesperson in Cutco from 17. So really I graduated in college. I put myself through college selling Cutco knives and I just hustled my whole way through college so I could graduate debt-free. And yeah, that's my upbringing. Where, how many siblings did you have? I had two amazing older sisters. I still do. Uh, so my oldest one was 10 years older. The middle one was five years older. I mean, I, and, I, and I, I think I read some birth order book that's talking about if you're five years apart, like my girls are nine years apart. I mean, they're great friends, but there's no competition. Like, it's almost like they're only children. So I'm not surprised you told the, you didn't tell the story with like elbow and everybody in the back seat because not everybody was within, you know, 18 months or something, you know? So did you kind of feel like that? Like somewhat of an only child or had your own experience? I think I was a pain in the butt 
<laughs> I always looked for I always looked for arguments about I was always really rebellious. If you're into the Enneagram, I'm only an eight, like an eight eight wing, you know, like I'm a hardcore eight. So if you ask my sister, they would say I was a pain in the butt. I didn't feel like an only child. But you are absolutely correct that it did feel like two separate lives, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were doing their own thing. Yeah, she's going to college and I'm going into whatever, third grade, fourth grade. Right, right. Right. Okay. And so now where did where did you end up going? To, you went to University of Alabama, right? Roll Tide. Roll Tide. And you studied entrepreneurship. That's not that hard to believe given uh, you were selling Cutco knives since you could uh, drive a car pretty much. But Tell us about that. I mean, obviously, you've, you've got this sort of clear sort of type A personality, but, you know, what, what else drew you to the entrepreneurship thing? I, I, a funny story is my wife, when I had my first dinner with her parents, her dad was a technology executive at a company called Citrix. So here he is, a top executive at a large tech company with this sweet, sweet girl. And she brings home this guy, freshman year of Alabama, that is a Puerto Rican kid that got in trouble growing up, that his family has little to no money, that he's slinging Cutco knives, right? And so definitely not what an executive of a technology company wants his daughter to bring home, you know? And so he asked me, he's like, so son, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was like, well, sir, I want to be financially free. What does that mean? I was like, I don't want to work for anyone. I want to be financially free. And so it's always been in my DNA, Jeff. Um, just something in me has always just wanted to be an entrepreneur, start things, innovate, create, and not and and just not have to be told what to do. Again, I'm a I'm a challenger. Yeah. Never fear of a challenger is to be controlled. Okay. So so this is in your DNA. It was obvious to everybody. You didn't have to kind of figure that out. I mean, you majored in entrepreneurship. Not that many people actually do that. I what think what is this management? Yeah. Okay. Uh, with a minor in entrepreneurship, so but but look, well, if they had had a major in it, that's what it would have been. Without a- <laughs> okay, so so what's the first job out of school? First job, really, it was. I mean, in all reality, I've been working full, full, full time since I was seventeen. Right to eighty-hour work weeks of making six figures a year since I was seventeen. So you didn't even really. It sound. It's like you reject the question, like. Yeah, yeah. School was there, but I was always working. Yeah, I don't even remember college. <laughs> I don't remember one. I don't remember one teacher's name. I don't remember one class. I don't remember a single thing because I've been in survival mode. Right. Seventeen. Whatever you got to do. Got to oh, fine. I got to pay for the class, but anyway, I got to pay for the apartment. I got to. I got to keep working. You nailed it. I mean, I wake up every single morning at six a.m. Make cold calls. Right. I right. walk to and make cold calls. I'd w- I mean, I would work, you know, seven days a week while being in a fraternity, while paying for my class, while driving to the community college to just get a certain credits because they were 25% the cost of University of Alabama. While meet- so, you know, when, I mean, it go- it's a much deeper question, but yeah. since I've been working since I was 17, by the time I graduated, I was already five years, six years ahead. So now when I look at my career, you know, everyone's like, man, we've been working through like 22. I'm like, dude, I've been working since I was 17. I'm tired. You know? Right. No, I totally get that. Yeah. Same. I was mowing lawns as soon as I could hold the mower, like <laughs> when the thing was, you know, not over my head, you know, I was like, but I felt the same question, way. Though, my first job at a school was technology. So 
Um, I wanted to get out of being a sales rep that my livelihood relies on the sale. And I wanted to get into a, an industry that I could build a career in. So I joined a, comp- a, a startup technology company called Wise Technology, um, and they sold cloud computing. So I joined them in 2011. And then you, you made your... You had a couple of stops in the tech world, Dell, DocuSign. Can you kind of run through that? Yeah, I was at um, I was at Wise Technology, and I I got the favor of the CEO of the company, and he said Alexander the Great conquer the world when he was nineteen. I have big expectations for you, um, and he and he just gave me an opportunity, um, and I became his chief of staff, and about a year later, we sold the company to Michael Dell. And so now we find ourselves at Dell and now I'm the chief of staff to my CEO there. And I was very, very, very young and I worked at Dell for two years and Michael just took the company private and I was drowning, you know, like I went from slinging knives, being a hustler to now being in the room with, you know, one of the greatest figures in history and technology, you know? And then from there, I got a phone call of one of our board members at the Startup Wise was also on the board at DocuSign. And he told me that another Silicon Valley icon just took over as CEO of this little startup named DocuSign. And then he was looking for a chief of staff. So by God's grace, I got, I, after my 10th time being canceled on by the CEO, I finally got into the meeting that he did not cancel. And he gave me the opportunity of a lifetime to be his chief of staff. And, and we built DocuSign from a hundred-ish people, probably a little bit less than a hundred to about 6,000 people. And it took us about six years and we took the company public. And that was, I pinch myself almost every day just on that opportunity. Yeah, that's that's a rare one, right? I mean, for every for every DocuSign, there's a hundred companies we've never heard of that probably tried to do the same thing, to be honest with you, right? And and, and uh, it's not, not the same outcome. That's an amazing outcome. I think we should come back to that. But before we do, you know, you you said a, a couple of things uh, that I think are pinging in, in, a, in a listener's brain. One is you didn't come from a sort of uh, faith-driven family, but you're also now using the term, you know, by God's grace. So where did you sort of, where did the faith story kind of kick in for you? It was 2013. So, you know, from since I can remember, I was sneaking out of my house, being very rebellious, getting suspended from school you know, chasing three things, girls, gold, and glory, the three G's that so many people have fallen off, obviously, in the Bible from those three G's, you know? And I was chasing those things since a young kid, chased those things in college as well. And, you know, I look in the mirror and I'm like, man, I'm making 100000 in in high school. I'm making 150000 plus in college, you know? And I'm balling, baby. You know, I'm doing uh-huh. And yet inside, there was just a lot of lack of purpose, a discontentment, a void. And then, you know, a startup. Wow, now we get sold. Now, and, and now I make some money. Still a discontentment, you know? And then now I'm flying all across the planet with Dell. And it's like, man, staying in every country, Japan, Brazil, all these places, still a lack of contentment, you know? Still a lack of purpose. And so my best friend invited me on a mission trip to Haiti. And he said, hey, do you want to go with me on a mission trip? So I went. And the Lord found me on that trip. You know, I think mm. God always pursues us. He's a pursuer. He's the initiator. And it's just our job to respond, you know? Yeah. And so he pursued me to the point that it was just irresistible. And I died on that trip and I was born again. And it was no longer me who lived. It was Christ who lived in me. 
heart of stone or heart of flesh. And I came back and didn't speak to anyone from my quote unquote old Mike life for about a year, including my wow. that I was dating for seven years. So my girlfriend and I were dating for seven years, came back, broke up with her, who's now my wife, by the way. We didn't speak for almost a year. I call her a year later about, and I'm like, hey, I just want to call you and ask for your apology. I want to repent for the way I treated you for the last seven years. She was basically like, I heard you're some Jesus freak now. <laughs> I don't know what that means, right. but you should give it a try. Like, how about I invite you to dinner? And the story, and that's why I became a believer in 2013. Wow. Wow. So wait, wait, wait. You go on this mission trip, you develop this relationship, right? you accept Christ, you come back, and then you broke up with her? Correct. And then it was seven years? Oh, wait. Oh, she'd been, okay. And then you separated for a year, basically, and then came back. And then, now, now how did she react to this when you were coming back? She's like, okay, well, yeah, I mean, we can go have dinner. I mean, I, that probably wasn't easy, actually, for her to. Yeah, yeah. I think it was very confusing for her, yeah. uh, the man she dated for, uh, of a boy, but immature, right. insecure boy that was fighting his childhood wounds that he never faced, right? And he was just trying to mask it all with killing himself at work and pride and greed and all these things and anger. And I think with the gospel, I think the fruit of the Spirit's real. It's pretty irresistible when you're dealing with someone and you see love. Well, she and saw the transformation, right? Yeah. yeah. Like literally, she and I talk about it all the time. It's, I was no longer the same person. Wow. So, <laughs> and I assume that she came to faith as well, did she? In that correct, yes, she did absolutely on her own faith journey. Yeah, yeah, in her own and their own way that the Lord worked with her. She got baptized before we got married on her own, her own decision. I got baptized on my own before my own decision. We did not. I mean, we did it the right way. I courted her. Yeah, we got back together, I and mean, it was such a redemption story. Wow, that's an amazing story. Yeah. Now, where were you working in, when that mission trip to Haiti took place? I was at Dell. You were. Right when she and I got back together, I just joined up with this little time and startup of DocuSign. That's crazy. Oh, and then all these things happen. I don't know. I'm just saying, maybe not a coincidence. I don't know. I'm not a prosperity gospel guy, but, you know, if following his principles isn't bad for, for you usually. I mean, I, if there's going to be joy and success. It's just not always monetary. In your case, it was, it was maybe both, but... Interesting. Okay, so you leave DocuSign, what? It goes public, it's too big for you. What, what took you out of DocuSign? Uh, I think the Lord continues to reveal more and more and more to me as I get older. I would think at the time, if you asked me why you're leaving DocuSign, I would say the whole point of joining a company is to see it go from no valuation, 80-something people, to $60 billion, 6,000 people, right? And so all the value creation is gone. And I think another yeah. thing today is is it got so big with so many layers that the that the innovative entrepreneurial uh, creative days that I could just create projects and run with it. Those days were gone. It was like here's your box, you know, that as a publicly traded company you got to fit in, right? But at the end of the day, it was just really a deep, deep, deep calling from the Lord. Of I really have always been obsessed with small to mid size, unsexy what some would call boring operating businesses. So at DocuSign, there was never anything to touch. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I could, that's true. I could touch this pen. Here outside my window, 
I see a garbage truck going right now. There's a guy cutting the lawn. There's someone building a new bridge, right? Like, I've always been a more simple. I mean, there's something tangible. I, hey, I got the Cutco knives. I like them. Exactly. But it's tangible. And you can like chop. Hey, look, it chops stuff better than the other thing. Like it's, uh, I get it. With the Very human centric, right? In yeah. Silicon Valley, I think the currency is how can you remove human labor and human capital, True. right? And have it all be intellectual capital and technology and, and invaluables. And I just always love dry cleaners and barbershops and gyms. Yeah. You know? Makes sense. Okay. So, so I want to go buy them. <laughs> exactly. So, so that seed is planted. Now you have the vehicle, but you had to kind of get from this place of the exit from DocuSign to, to Garden City. What, what, what was that path like? What were the steps in between? It was such a thing of the Lord. Um, it really was. It's, I had this vision that I wanted to just buy operating, local operating companies, the cash flow. And just create passive income and own a bunch of businesses. That was it. Maybe I buy a car wash that I own with my DocuSign money. Maybe I buy a barbershop. Maybe I buy a mechanic shop, stuff like that. And that's it. And the Arietta family owns, you know, six businesses that cash flow nicely. And then the Lord just continued to reveal more and more to me of this is where real ministry could happen. Like this is where real ministry could happen is that people like my father never really had opportunity or respect or purpose or live life on mission. They never had a place of belonging, right? They were just a cog in the wheel. You know, you come off a Delta flight and these amazing workers are there at midnight providing for their families wearing the orange vest. No one even says hi or thank you to them. They're invincible, right? And something in me, there was this cross-pollination of ministry in the marketplace, this cross-pollination of people and profit, right? of like a purposeful business, right? That is not mutually exclusive, like a people first company. I'm like, man, forget starting a nonprofit. What about starting an amazing for-profit enterprise that buys these companies that employ people and we just bless them wildly. We provide great jobs for them to thrive and prosper and flourish. Um, And then I was like, you know what? I'll put a lot of my capital behind it. But if we really want to do this at scale, I need to have more capital. I don't want to have dumb capital. I want to have value add mission aligned investors. So I just started calling all mission aligned investors that were awesome. They were like, yeah, dude, let's do it. Let's go buy some great companies with our mutual capital and let's bless these people. This makes perfect sense. I mean, I love it when these stories fit together. I mean, I'm not that smart. So everything's got to be really obvious for me to get it. But for me, like, I hope somebody's on the treadmill list of this. I mean, this is so logical, right? I mean, we all understand. I mean, we, you painted a great picture of the hustle that was required, right? And for yourself, and we call it at, at, at Arcos, the gift of the struggle. Like when you have some money and your kids don't, you know, they have access to more, let's just say, than we did as kids. You have to create the gym for the gift of the hustle. You had the gift without having to create the gym, okay? You were a, you're, you're a, but this idea where that, and you saw your dad struggle, and we talked before we recorded about this, what you witnessed with your, your dad's struggle as a, as a laborer and those sort of things. And so you had a heart for those kind of people. You've sold tangible things. You did the software thing. Okay, that's cool. Made some money. But it, that's not a business that, is, that helps those people as directly. I mean, those things, you know, technology helps everybody, productivity and all that. Maybe make their job easier and all. I, I mean, I get that. I'm not trying to downplay it, but it makes sense for you that tangible work can help the the laborer, if you will. 
And so kind of who you are. So how did you start doing that? Did you just buy a one or two? How did it come along? No. Well, I really wanted to just replicate kind of a a Warren Buffett picture. Yeah, yeah. Everybody knows that story, right? Yeah, of small business. And so I just was reading a lot about Warren Buffett and Brookshire Hathaway and just thinking about how that model works. And then I just really started talking to my mentors and saying, hey, I want to start buying businesses. And one guy, I'll never forget because that night, my wife and I, when we celebrated and I wrote a little note, but one guy's like, yeah, I'll give you a million dollars. And that was like, whoa, like, did he just say that? Yeah. He, yeah, just send me the documents and I'll pledge a million dollars. And as you need it, you know, you call it down and you use my million. Then someone else said another million. I'm like, well, what do I do now? And so someone told me, like, you're starting a private equity fund and right. you're raising commitments of capital. And as you buy companies, you're going to use that capital to buy them. And you're going to use and you're going to charge them a management fee per year. It's going to allow you to build out a team to manage this investment operation. And so we hired attorneys, we created the documents. And then I said, you know what? Let's just raise 10 million. And then we raised 10. And it was like, well, I guess we should raise 20. Well, I guess we should raise 30. And then we ended at 50 plus million for a first time fund. You know, for it's, it's not a fund, a first time holding company and with 50 amazing shareholders. And that was it. And then we were off to the races. And then it was building the team. And once we had the team, now it's then creating the brand. And then it's letting people in the, investment bankers and financial offices, financial advisory firms and CPAs and law firms to know who we are. Hey, Guardian City Equity buys family-owned and founder-led you know, companies, founders that want to sell. Either they want us to take some chips off the table or they need a liquidity plan or, or they just want to get out. you know. And we buy those businesses. We close in 60 days. We keep it really simple. We use no debt, zero debt, and we buy and never sell. So we buy these Great assets, and we hold them forever. And you know, that is a different model that's typically out there in private equity. This is more of a permanent capital. I don't know what uh, what term you use, perhaps, but there's elements to that that make it harder. Actually, I mean, I, I, we understand the benefits of holding for a long period of time, and then you get to have maybe more ministry and that kind of thing for a longer period of time. But the typical private equity fund. What do you think the average hold is? Five to ten years? If you want it, yes, five to ten years is tough. Five to seven years is probably the average. Five to seven, yeah. They're targeting three to five. So, right, hot potato, right? As soon as they buy a company, they're trying to quickly figure out how do I. They got ninety day plans to pump it up, and yes, that's exactly it. Sell it to the next guy. So, what are the challenges and advantages of of having more permanent capital? The advantages is that. We obviously have a long-term horizon, yeah. right? So we can invest into many things now that will not pay off for one, two, three years. It's building a really, really firm foundation, right? The other advantage of long-term capital is that uh, financially, there's a lot of, lot of, lot of benefits of not being of tax benefits. There's a lot of benefits of not needing to use debt because we don't need to generate short-term returns. The disadvantages of long-term capital is you don't make as much money quickly. Yes, right. That's, right. It's not a get-rich-quick thing, right? One of our businesses right now, I'll preserve the name, but we bought it about a year and a half ago. If we were to take it out to market right now, 
we would make tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars. Instead, we just use the cash flow and we take the cash flow and we, and we repay our investors. And the next year we repay our investors and we repay. So our management team, our company, we don't make money until our investors make all their money back. So that might take another two to three years. So I could either go sell the company now and make personally $10 million. Yep. Or I wait another five years, four years, and then maybe that next year make a couple hundred thousand. The next year make a couple hundred thousand, right? So two different models. But the question is, what are you solving for? If our whole thing is to solve for just short-term profit as quick as humanly possible, then we should buy with as minimal equity as possible, as much debt as the banks want to give us as possible, and flip it to the next guy who's want to give us more as quick as possible. If what we're trying to solve for is to bless people and create a place where they feel recognized and they have a place of purpose and belonging and a place that they understand that they could actually be the best husband or wife they can be, what are we then why are we not happy with making solid cash flow returns for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years? Because our real thing we're solving for is impact in the marketplace. Let's talk about I think that was a great way to describe it because I think you know, so the way I picture it is, you know, in a typical two and 20 private equity structure, you know, if you're getting a 20, it, you know, if you buy a business for 10 million bucks, load it up, sell it for 30 million bucks in five years. I mean, you as the leader of the private equity firm will participate in the, in the carry much more quickly. So look, you might buy a business at Garden City with its permanent equity, no debt, no lever. Okay. Just by not having leverage on it, that's going to lower your returns. Okay. But then you also, even if the business goes up at the same rate, you're not selling it. So you don't have a liquidity event that puts a bunch of money in, in your pocket, right? So it, it really, I think it requires that kind of missional approach. It absolutely does. Absolutely. I mean, on the same example, so let's get geeky for 60 seconds, just to speak specifics. I know, sorry, I'm a financial geek. So we, for, you know... Uh, Count this as an education for the non-financial geeks, but we're going to go financial geek. Go for it. Exactly. So say, so say that you own a landscape company. That landscape company makes a profit. That, the, the guy that owns that company makes $2 million a year profit, a free cash flow, even a call, whatever you want to call it. And a buyer comes in and offers that guy four times his EBITDA. So bam, here's $8 million. Right. Right. Now- the way our model works is on the first year that we are the new stewards of that business, we just make $2 million. So that's, that's awesome. That's a 25% return on our money. Cost us $8 million, We just made $2 million. The next year, the business stays flat again. Let's just say we just made another $2 million. That's another 25% return. In the third year, we make another $2 million. In the fourth year, another. So in, the, in four years, Jeff, it took us four years because we bought the business four times. All the money back. back. Just to pay back our investors. Jeff. Yeah. So here's how much money we made. Zero. As me, as the, as the private equity fund manager, me and my team, we made zero. The investors made 25% return on their money, but they didn't make any profit yet. Right? They just got their equity back. Yeah. Now let's use the same exact example with the private equity model. That company makes $2 million of EBITDA. They also give them four times, right? So they bought the business for $8 million. And on the first year, they take all that $2 million of equity and they just reinvest it back in the business. They don't distribute it out. And so now the second year, they invest it again. They, and the third year, they invest it again. And the fourth year, they invest it again. So no one makes any money in those years. But now let's say that EBITDA 
is at $4 million of EBITDA. They're going to go sell that business for five times, yeah. right? And now that means they sold it for five times four is 20 million. Yep. So they bought it for eight. And four years later, they sell it for 20. Yep. So they just made a $12 million profit. Of that $12 million profit, they get 20% of. So they just made $2.4 million in their pockets. Same scenario, same exact EBITDA. And they just basically made $12 million of profit. And they got $2 million in their pocket. We just paid back our investors and we haven't even made a profit yet. Now, the difference is now they just flipped that company. Who knows how much debt? Who knows the damage? Who knows the management team that parachuted in that's now parachuting out? Who knows the people that they replaced with technology systems? And now, what I will bet you is if you give us a 10 year mark, well, now in 10 years, we now made another two, 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 two million every year, right? So it just depends. Are you a long term value? A long-term value add, mission aligned, patient capital investor that just takes that two million for the next twenty years, or you would get rich quick guy that now needs to get that capital and look to work to reinvest yeah. it. All right. Well, thank you for the lesson. I'll I'll spare our non-financial people any more of uh, financial geekdom. But th- thank you. That was a oh, that was a very simple overview. Let's get back to the ministry piece. If what do you hope, or maybe there's even a story you could tell, a, a real world story. But maybe, uh, maybe we just start there. I, what I'm imagining is your your landscape example. Okay, let's say you buy a landscape company at, uh, and uh, you've got people out there. I mean, you're in Florida. I'm in Houston, Texas. Uh, we're recording this in the summertime when it's probably 102 degrees outside. I went home the other day. We had a landscaper guy asleep on our walkway because he, I think he'd passed out from the heat. You know what I mean? Like, can I get you some? I mean, it was, it's brutal out there. How do you want in this proverbial, you know, hypothetical story, how do you want your person working for your landscape company to be treated differently from the person working at, a, at another one? So the name of our firm is Garden City. Where that comes from is that in the beginning, when God made us and he called us into the garden of Eden, he made us all in his image and it was good. He made us to thrive and prosper and flourish. And I think what he calls us to now, the calling, the mission that he calls us to is to co-labor with him and bring that garden image into our cities. So where everything is good, where there's shalom, right? Where there's thriving and prospering. So that's what we want to do in our companies. How do we do that? It's a plethora of ways. Yeah, sure. Probably the most relevant example is our janitorial company. So we have over 500 cleaners, right? And when you look at what we do for these cleaners, we are giving them a ridiculously amazing employee benefit program where it is giving them matching their 401k to a point that is extremely generous so that they could save. We're giving them free Dave Ramsey financial peace classes so they know how to save. We are giving them a monthly uh, town hall where, where we're walking them through the entire company around our mission, our values, our financials, our profit, or the good, the bad, the ugly. We're giving them leadership lessons and leadership curriculums. We're giving them a very clear path as to how they could get promoted in a very expedited time period, right? We are writing them birthday cards. Every single person in the company gets a handwritten birthday card. I cannot tell you the number of people that cry saying that it's been a decade since anyone's ever given them a birthday card. 
We hire people out of the prison system, right? Someone just was in prison for 10 years. They got saved there. And now they're one of our greatest cleaners. We hire people out of halfway houses. So the stories go on and on and on when before the business had none of this. Have you found that the turnover is also lower maybe than the, I would think if you're treating people that well in a high, I gotta be a high turnover industry. Is your turnover lower than the industry? Absolutely it is. It absolutely, absolutely is lower than the industry on so many fronts, on customer satisfaction, on employee turnover, on cap, on cost for acquisition, on everything. And I just, so it, and to me, you know, as a business owner, you know, and the people listening to this mostly are business owners. It's like, it's actually good business. Wouldn't you say it? Like, I know that like you're, I'm sure given all that litany of things you're doing, benefits that they get, your cost per employee has to be way higher than the average on the street. But yet, it, even though I know you're doing it for the right reason, which is to give them respect, okay, and try to show them God's love, even though you're doing it for the right reasons, is it also good for business? Look, absolutely it is. Something I tell a lot of people is this. So one, two of our investors, doesn't matter who they are, obviously, yeah. um, do not align with us on our Christian faith. But no one can argue that this is good business to treat people the way they want to be treated. What we say is happy employees equals happy customers, which results in a thriving and profitable business. So all these things we're doing, is it bad to do financial counseling? Is it bad to have prayer meetings? Is it bad to financially educate them on the business plan and the financials? Is it bad to send them a birthday gift? Is it bad to, no, none of it is. Is it bad to have a book club to read amazing books from Jeff Gordon or John Maxwell or Patrick, you know, et cetera, et cetera. None of it, it's just good business. Yeah, and I think that's, I think that's the fallacy uh, that there's probably somebody walking the dog that maybe that's the bill of goods they were sold is that if I do these things for my employees, because I think, you know, we're on the Generous Business Center podcast. Like, I mean, we didn't even, I mean, calling it out. I mean, clearly, I mean, I hope you're generous as the, as the thing goes. We can get into those things. But I, but I think clearly this is your drumbeat. This is where you're most generous is to the people who work for these businesses that you buy. And I think there's some people that are thinking, man, if I do those things for my employees, I'm going to make less money. You know, you know, what do you say to those people? Uh, so two things, I don't know if this answers your question that um, I believe it. I believe one, our greatest, my greatest ministry personally is my family. That's mm -hmm. my best way to be generous is my children and my spouse, my partner that God gave me. And the number one way to be generous in business is my people, especially the people that we employ. Um, so I'm not against any other, a lot of our investors, they use their company profits and they give them to amazing ministries overseas and they build schools in Africa and that's incredible. And that's what God has called them to do. For me, my belief is that we get the opportunity to have our ministry be our internal people. It's our own ministry of blessing those people because once you sit with them, which we do all the time, they need help. They should be the people that ministries are giving to you. So yeah. Why would we send money overseas or down the street when we could bless our own people? That yeah. 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 yeah, I totally get it. Like, 
instead of spending the money, let, let's just make it this simple. Let's say you spend an extra, I'm just pulling a number off a of bus, okay. uh, five, 5,000 bucks on, on 100 different employees. And instead of helping them directly, you give uh, whatever that is, uh, you know, $50,000 to, uh, to a local ministry that they go to. I mean, to get the help that you could actually give them directly with, without all the middleman. I mean, is, is it that simple? I don't want to harp on it because I get very, 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 very passionate about it. Yes, yes, yes. You just absolutely nailed it. It's like, oh, oh, we want to give money? Okay, how many people actually are going to have a one Christmas gift for their own children this year? Yeah. And that number will make your mouth drop. Yeah. So it's, how about we go spend $8,000? And we go spend a hundred dollars per each family, and so forth. And then they sit there crying that they are actually seen and acknowledged, and that they could bless their children. Like that is ministry, right? And so, so I honestly don't. We don't give to other outside ministry unless the Lord very, very clearly calls us to. And everybody's different, man. You know, yeah. like, like you know, our business, the way we look at our ministry is to our clients, and but our product is biblical wisdom around finance that's it's actually imbued in our product okay so that's cool but we don't have a lot of low-income people as employees so what do we do so we give money to other things to do so there's there's just everybody's different some people hey they're in the tech business they don't have all those people they make you know it's some insane return okay there's places to plug in so anyway i just think it's i just think it's awesome how i think maybe when when people see the title of this podcast, a generous business owner, it's about giving away money, you know, like to charity. Uh, and a lot of people do, and they do amazing work. But I love this because it's, it's, this is such a clear illustration of that it's not just about that. The way you treat your employees is absolutely a ministry. And you're really called to businesses that have a lot of them. Yes. And, and I'll push back on even the tech side, right? I think if I were to own a tech business, and I wanted it to be ministry. And I would say, just because they get paid well financially does not mean that they are spiritually bankrupt. That's true too. It doesn't mean that they're not spiritually bankrupt. That's true. I would challenge it and say, what does a marriage weekend at JH Ranch look like? Yeah. Right? Like, it's a company benefit where it's like, you clearly get paid 120K a year. You could afford to go do something. Well said. Well I said. There's still ministry up to it. It's just different. It, it yeah. might be different. The, what you bring to the table might be different. Yeah. But you can still bring things to the table. Well said. Well said. Well, listen, as we wrap up here, Michael, this has been so much fun. You're really a, a, an amazing communicator. You know, we always try to wrap up with a practical tip. Somebody's behind you in the journey. Maybe it's uh, Michael Arietta, circa 2012 or 13, maybe not quite the believer, maybe uh, driving a little too hard, but maybe the 13 version where you're, they're just kind of waking up to this idea and like, is this something I should pursue? How do I think about my platform as ministry? What, what's just a, you know, again, we're just a, a couple of business guys having a conversation uh, that we're not doing this for a living. So we're just really just trying to bless people with some, somebody behind in the journey. What's a, what's a practical tip that's coming to mind? God does not need you to be a success in business. God does not need you to go and build anything. What God requires from us is obedience. And right now, the biggest tip that I would give myself is, Michael, your number one ministry is going to be being a present and engaged father to your children. 
and being a faithful and loving husband to your wife. Make sure that the whole drive to build a kingdom business and the whole drive to be generous and the whole drive to be a light in the dark is a never gets trumped by, or always gets trumped by you being the best, most present and engaged father. Because the way that kids spell love is T-I-M-E, right? And it's very easy for all these buzzwords, faith-driven investor, faith-driven entrepreneur, all these things to drive us to use these things as idols and to, to reason with ourselves and justify all the late nights, early mornings, text messages, phone calls, right? Hey, I'm talking to this believer. Hey, I'm doing this for the kingdom. What God wants us to do is be a good steward of leading our families well, right? Being present, having the conversation with our children about what is actually really happening in this world, having a conversation with our children about who the Lord is, having a conversation there with our wives, that they are worthy, that they are strong, that they're courageous, that they're, that they're beloved, right? So that would be the biggest, biggest advice that I have to tell myself every single day, Jeff, that I need to do better at, right? That God does not need Carded City. God does not need me to buy companies. God does not need me to raise more money. What God is requiring me in obedience is to be a good husband and father. Obedience over outcome, and it starts at home. I love it. Well, Michael, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with us. I know it's going to be a, a blessing to many, many people. Thanks again. You're welcome. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. Please share it with a friend, leave us your ratings and reviews, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.